This is Takatoshi Shibayama, and you're listening to the Future Design Podcast. Today, I've got Peter Fourier, senior researcher from the Future Cities Laboratory. We're going to have a chat about autonomous vehicles, flying taxis, and a possible Orwellian society. Future Design Podcast. So, <laughs> Peter, so what is your vision of the future in transportation? Um, well, I, I I hope it is not that dystopia that you that you're talking about, where it's a bit like Wally. You know, everybody's <laughs> sitting on a couch. And, oh, yeah, that's you know an auto- automated couch that just yeah. you know, gets you from one meal to the next. So, hopefully, we'll you know still have something that resembles a community. We can get around pretty easily and equitably. You know, everybody yeah. has access to mobility, mm-hmm. and we could still walk. And yeah, importantly, where where it's maybe a, a future where technology is set up in such a way that it kind of encourages you to to have that active uh, active right. mobility as well. Yeah. Remember in uh, Back to the Future, uh, I think it was the third one. Uh, when Marty goes back into time, it was, oh, no, no, it was Doc that was talking about, you know, in the future, you know, people uh, actually walk or something like that. And then everybody was laughing at him. Exactly. Or, or something like that. Right? You run for fun or something like that. Yeah, it's yeah. funny. Now, a, a more recent sort of reference was, a, a, I actually saw it the other day in, in uh, Stranger Things. Uh-huh. Uh, and this idea of, yeah, somebody just walking by the side of the road is uh-huh. so alien yeah, you know, and, and especially in that day, in you know, in like the nineteen eighties, yeah, the, the car was the ultimate you know form of transportation. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting to see how that's changing. Yeah, it's, um, we, we they, they people kind of want that back. They want yeah, you know, that the the ability to, you know, to have more of a, a sort of a human scale interaction with mm-hmm. the world. Yeah, I'd say I think everything is becoming a lot more. Uh, tech these days and you know maybe there is a future where people want to like scale that back a little bit mm. and then you know be more you know humane I guess in that sense like less tech I don't know like I think about my kids you know going through you know their iPads and you know watching YouTube and they're so um, you know the f- information is like right in their face I mean our generation is like having a tough time you know getting ourselves off the smartphone you know and uh, you know interact with other people but uh, maybe, maybe you know, kids in the future, maybe one or two uh, generations later, uh, can actually manage that much better than us. Yeah, or you know, we, we certainly don't want them to sit like in a self-driving car and you know something like a Minority Report and just mm. get bombarded with you know advertising yeah. that's completely catered to exploit their every vulnerability because... Uh, yeah, know, I would hate a... that. <laughs> I'll be like, fuck that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to see all ads uh, in your eyes. Yeah, yeah. So, and it's going to be hard to to design cities mm-hmm. like that, I, I think, you know, mm-hmm. um, because definitely the, the, the you know, the, 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 capitalist, the capitalist incentive is mm-hmm. to have exactly that, right? Yeah. I mean, look at Facebook, look at mm-hmm. Cambridge Analytica, Look at all the machine learning algorithms and things nowadays. It's nothing. There's no better captive audience than you know when 
you're sat in a vehicle mm. uh, and, uh, you know, they know exactly who you are, where you're coming from, yeah. where you're going to, uh, mm. and uh, maybe cross-reference that a bit against your spinning patterns. Mm-hmm. And know that, oh, that, you know, if you're picking a guy up at 12 o'clock in Geelong, this guy's maybe ready to make some bad decisions. <laughs> <you know>? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> imagine, the, imagine the car yeah. decides where yeah. you're going to go next. Right? Right. <laughs> Ads of condoms coming up. <laughs> Use this one. Imagine, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, there are, there are all sorts of um, sorts of ways to imagine that future. And certainly, uh, I, you know, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I've got a kid now myself, and that definitely changes your your perspective on, mm-hmm. on how you see all of this panning out in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we 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 we're definitely trying to think in a in a more proactive way. How are you going to design to to get those? Those outcomes, yeah. Uh, rather than just ending up with, uh, you know, a world that's kind of more designed for machines than for humans, which is kind mm-hmm. of what we what we have at the moment. Yeah, yeah, right. So, in the future of um, transportation, so we're talking about autonomous cars, flying taxis, um, you know, Hyperloop kind of things. Um, what 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 are we what are we uh, um, you know uh, what are we designing at the moment? Yeah, maybe maybe that's the first thing we should talk about is mm. is it really going to be all of that? Yeah. I mean, if I look at my, you know, some of the 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 researchers that I'm following on LinkedIn, especially the Dutch guys. Mm-hmm. They say what why are you bothering with all of this nonsense? You know, you've already got human scale transportation, you know, that can get you to most places in a pretty mm-hmm. reasonable time yeah. without too much fuss. You know, you get on a bicycle and it's still the actually the most efficient way of, yeah. of, of of getting around, so I really hope that that's still kind of part of part of the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know you see it in, in in the planning that they're doing here in Singapore as well. Mm-hmm. Like the, if you if you get into the um, the elevators at the Urban Redevelopment Authority, um, they have lots of sort of provocative, you know, um, posters sometimes set up in the elevators. It's nice mm-hmm. conversation items. And one of them was uh, looking at the share of, of like, bus trips. Mm-hmm. Um, it's less than one kilometer. Right. And then you see it's a, it's a, it is a hell of a lot of them. Okay. Well, people here don't really like to walk outside. <laughs> exactly, that, yeah. right? But maybe, maybe you know, if, you, if you've got electric bicycles and if there's actual infrastructure, then all of those, you know, areas where we see those trips, mm-hmm. you know, could, you could get the people out of the bus, right? Yeah. So you could get the people maybe out of the car if you know if they're going to make that trip. So I, I really are get, just getting back to what we'd said before. That's going to be part of the the um, the future vision. Um, but of course, you, you can't get everywhere by by bicycle, and so we're. I would say that the kind of thinking that we're doing at the moment is, um, yeah, obviously things like the self-driving cars yeah. featuring quite. Strongly, but there's also, you, it's there's also a lot there, you know, that that we should unpack maybe right. as we as we go on later because there's a lot you can do with that technology, mm-hmm. um, and there are lots of good and bad decisions that you can probably make in terms of just how you're gonna how you're gonna use that system, mm-hmm. and hopefully we don't see too much in the way of you know of air taxis except for cases where it really makes sense. Mm-hmm. Singapore, we tend to be, I mean, it's a contained city, no? Yeah. There's no, 
there's no place that you can expand into. Mm. But most places in the world, I mean, where I come from, Johannesburg and Pretoria, they've, they've sprawled to the extent that they've essentially kind of meshed into each other. Right. You know? And it's just continuing. Yeah. Uh, and that's the case in most uh, cities that in the true. world because it's all enabled by, you know, the ability to move very far, very cheaply. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the, the costs of that is, you know, is besides the, the, the environmental cost of all of the natural environment that you're destroying mm -hmm. in, in the process, there's also all sorts of social costs, you know, that you, you're paying and obviously just a much larger network that you need to uh, mm -hmm. uh, upkeep. The moment we've got flying cars, then we can basically infect any part of the world, right? Right, exactly. So, that's yeah. Kind of <laughs> yeah. so I, 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 I'm still a bit conservative as far as, as, as that's concerned. But mm -hmm. I see, certainly see that there's potential for it um, as a substitute for, you know, for high-speed rail in, in, in certain countries that maybe can't afford mm -hmm. um, that sort of infrastructure. Right. I guess also it's political, right? So, mm. um, you know, uh, we were discussing a little bit before, um, if you want to have a high-speed train that goes through different countries, um, there's a lot of political issues. Um, you know, political regimes change yeah. uh, while the build-out is happening. Um, you know, there's, I could just see so many, um, you know, barriers. Uh, Certainly, that yeah. Happen. And, and, and I mean, at least from an aerospace point of view, th those sort of relationships are already pretty established mm -hmm. although i can't see these vehicles sharing the same airspace so there'll be yeah. have to be special corridors sure. for them and there will definitely be very specific challenges especially for the fact that you can't queue in the air right, right. Uh, or not at least not cheaply i mean we you i usually feel a little bit uneasy after a long haul flight if all of a sudden mm. i'm put in a holding pattern in the plane right i imagine yeah. you're in an electric flying yeah. car and you can see the battery level steadily dropping <laughs> yeah as you're waiting and you want to, you don't want to be on the bottom either <laughs> on the ground exactly so there's uh, there's that but yeah certainly for for the the you know for for certain contexts where it's hard to get high speed rail like in the us we see now the mess that they have in in california with all of the lawsuits just piling up because people own the property uh, where you have to build this infrastructure. So I, I can see it having potential in those sort of uh, mm -hmm. contexts. Um, I think it can be amazing to activate a region like um, what we see here, you know, the archipelago of, you know, of uh, Indonesia and Malaysia, mm -hmm. um, where at the moment they have to rely on things like ferries, right? Yeah. And so everything is massively staggered. You, know, um, you can imagine that being able to have a very fast, relatively uh, high volume of connection between mm -hmm. such islands can, can lead to massive economic empowerment. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, um, like our ability to infect most of the world is also increasing because we're becoming less and less reliant on connective infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So I can see that being a concern. Mm -hmm. Now we can go to you know habitats that have been untouched, and you don't. You can just purify your own water. You can, you know, set up your own uh, solar, you know, uh, solar panels, solar panels, and whatever. Um, and you can have your little life out there, in, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And I can see that becoming problematic. Mm. So yeah, right. I'm still very concerned. I think. Uh, if, uh, there's, I think, 
And obviously, I'm sure that the, 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 the powers that be that have to decide about whether these things go ahead, they're probably just as concerned, at mm-hmm. least I hope they are, mm-hmm. in terms of um, uh, really deciding how this technology should play out in mm. the end. Right. Well, you know, let's let's talk about the autonomous cars now. That, mm. You know, because Singapore uh, has been experimenting with autonomous cars. That yeah. So I've heard. Um, and what are they doing uh, with these cars uh, what, what are the results that they're getting? You know, is this something that we can see rolling out in like five years or so? So, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of work going on in that. Uh, I mean, one of the major uh, spin-off companies uh, of MIT was actually based in Singapore. Mm-hmm. Uh, they come from the Singapore-MIT Alliance for Research yeah. and Technology, um, which conveniently shortens to SMART. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, uh, it's it's uh, Fratzoli's company, um, and, well, and him and his colleagues. It's called um, uh, Newtonomy. Yeah, and they they do a lot of the uh, really the AI and uh, um, you know computational infrastructure that you need to, to to make this stuff work. So there's a lot of tech being developed. ST Engineering, in, you know, uh, in Singapore is doing a lot. I mean, uh, they've already got concepts for. Um, you know, for autonomous buses and things mm-hmm. like that. There's the CTRAN, um, uh, NTU, and I can't remember who they're collaborating with there. But there's this this whole testing center on the on the west okay. western part of the island, right? Where they're um, testing all of these different autonomous vehicle concepts from a lot of different companies, right? Um, in a simulated urban environment and. You know, they've got a rain simulator there to see if the thing doesn't you know, run people over at the moment. Right, yeah, yeah. The moment there's a, a, a bit of a storm, or oh, does it still work when it's in a really, you know, um, like sort of a urban canyon environment versus mm. when it's open road? Yeah. So that's quite interesting. So yeah, a lot of work going on in the technology side, um, but also uh, a lot of forward thinking. I think on the on the planning side. Um, we are working with um, SMART in, um, and uh, the National University of Singapore together with all of the major agencies uh, in a project um, commissioned by the Ministry of Transport uh, and the Ministry of National Development where we really try to design new neighborhoods to, to deal with this mode and actually start to think about how is this actually going to play out. Mm-hmm. Once this um, technology has reached a certain level of maturity, where it's really viable, right? And how does that kind of fit with, uh, um, you know, with the vision that they have in Singapore for this? You must have heard of it, yeah. this car light Singapore. Yeah, sure. So Singapore has always been leading in terms of, uh, you know, its its philosophy uh, about motorized transport. So uh, there's this. Uh, currently, we have this certificate of entitlement. Mm-hmm which is, I guess, for people that don't live in Singapore, it's, it's an upfront cost that you pay just for the right to own a car. Yep. And then there are just massive taxes and so on that, that, that help to limit the, the um, population of vehicles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the COE costs as much as the car yeah, uh, exactly. or the original cost of the car. And then here it's taxed like three or four times uh, the actual value of the car. So it makes it really difficult for people to buy a car. However, I see so many people owning a car, so you know it, it almost seems like it's not actually working. Well, I mean that's a whole kettle of uh, that, that's a, a, a 
a can of worms on its own there because obviously those sort of uh, policies also interact with uh, financing policies. Mm. And and I understand also that those uh, finance policies have now again been adjusted mm. because um, if you can pay off that that certificate of entitlement, yeah. entitlement over a 10-year period, then then you can actually you know bring the cost down quite significantly. Mm. And there there are certainly certain user groups that are willing to to pay that because they well you can think of it you know I mean I, I know myself I've got a kid it's uh, it can be hard sometimes mm. if you, you know if you want to go somewhere and you always have to carry everything with yeah. you it's nice to, the car is almost like a, a movable storage system yeah right? <laughs> and and for the but and uh, I mean I I drive sometimes but mm. I I make use of car club uh, which is like this car sharing. Um, company and there are more and more of those initiatives going mm-hmm. on there as well. But to get back to the yeah. to the earlier question, um, so they they've been pretty proactive in terms of managing the car population and then this electronic road pricing to also manage the use of mm. the vehicle. But ultimately, they want to go car line, which yeah. means that that they can actively reduce the car population mm. because uh, the cars are not only Problematic in you know in all of the ways that we know, which is you know greenhouse gases. I mean, you can say okay, then just, let's just make all of them electrical, mm-hmm. but they just take up a lot of space. Yeah. Um, the the amount of road space is something like fourteen or sixteen percent. I'm, I'm speaking, uh, you know, under correction here, but of the of the buildable surface of what's already a very um, you know, a, a, a land scarce country, mm, and yeah. I mean, the, to the extent that they actually have to consider building underground, right? Mm, to, to yeah. So, um, if you can reclaim all of that space for other purposes, yeah. then uh, then that's really great. And if you can green the um, the environment in the process, you can really reduce this uh, urban heat island effect. You know that, right, they, that yeah. they're suffering from where. The island is essentially much warmer than what it would have been if it was uh, not built up in the mm. way that it is. Right. Mm. I, I was. I always thought that you know cars in the future will be like tr- public transport. You know, it's like buses mm. where you know you have a scheduled time. Well, maybe not scheduled time, but there's a there's a finite limit of 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 buses uh, that are out in the city, and uh, you know maybe you hail a car. And you get in it and go to a certain destination, but you don't own a car, right? It's like it's like you don't own a bus, right? Same thing. So but that's exactly you're, you're exactly right. That's kind of the vision that they have for these uh, self-driving cars that mm-hmm. it, that you don't end up with a, uh, a completely a private ownership model. Of course, you're still going to have again, you know, some user groups that are simply either married to the concept of having a car. Yeah. I mean, there are also lots of cultural issues in the sense of a car being a, a really powerful status symbol mm. in a country where everybody knows exactly yeah. how much it costs. Yeah. So it's a great way for you to advertise um, your resources. Um, but uh, that aside, uh, that will likely become a, a much smaller group and mm. maybe through some advocacy, I mean, at least we know also that this is a country that's open to you know, mm. to to um, uh, you know to new initiatives like that. So maybe we'll see some adjustment of the population, 
and we'll see that radically reduced. And then, then the, the, the self-driving car becomes exciting because it allows you a mix of public transportation that you probably that you can't uh, operate at this stage because mm. it's simply the cost of, of, of paying all of those drivers would be you know um, too prohibitive. Mm. And of course, there are the other benefits of these um, systems in the sense that they can drive in a really coordinated way. Yeah. You can stack a lot of them much closer to each other and they've mm. got the control systems that are much better than human beings. Mm. So you can effectively double the capacity of your uh, available infrastructure mm. or conversely you can cut out half of the existing infrastructure and use it for something else yeah right and yeah the main thing is how do you how do you fill them up you know um there's there's a bit of resistance getting into a you know a, a smaller vehicle with a bunch of strangers Right, it's not always you know not people might not be not, might not be so keen on that. Mm. So those are the, some of the things that we're looking at. How how should they operate? Mm. Um, maybe I don't want to get in the in the car with a bunch of strangers, but if I can book the ride beforehand, you know, for my for my daily commute, then it becomes a bit like a you know a, a car club, you know, like right. or, or a ride pool club where mm. you you have a chat on the way to work, you know. Um, or they could be like different sized cars, right? So and that's the it could other be like part. one person to like you know bus level you know sizes. It's exactly uh, what we're doing, mm. looking at exactly. Yeah. So the the mix is important, um, but then you need to kind of uh, trade that off against uh, um, you know what what is viable in terms of the the the, the ridership. Mm. So it's gonna be harder to fill up. A fifty-seater bus, mm. if it's operating in a completely flexible way. Yeah, that's true. Um, because at the moment, if you think about it, each bus stop essentially has a, a high potential to reach a small number of destinations, and then that potential diminishes faster as you need to transfer to other services. Mm. So you can't access everywhere from every single bus stop. Mm. But once you have uh, such a mobility on demand system mm. where I mean, we, we still see it operating mainly from bus stops we, uh, it becomes completely untenable well, not untenable but you really need a very large very small vehicle fleet in order to serve really building to building demand so you still mm. only want to keep that to to um, you know to people who really need it let's mm. say you're going to do your shopping or whatever then you want to go really from door to door but for most part, these things become e efficient once you can bundle the rides at mm. transit stops. But then still, the transit stop, each transit stop essentially has the potential to reach any other transit stop. Mm. And you're kind of kind of flattening out that accessibility. Mm. And then it becomes hard to fill large vehicles because, not, you know, exactly because everywhere is accessible, yeah. not everybody wants to go to exactly the same places you are so it's going to be hard to find somebody to share that bus with you and make the drop off along the way mm -hmm. so th that's one of the the challenges you know that we're looking mm. at and that really becomes a design question yeah because then you might want to look at ways of really funneling looking at your at your your city and where the demand you know is concentrated mm. and how can you make it really easy for people to reach central points where you can bundle lots of rides mm -hmm. and, right. and, and and get some efficiency in, in mm -hmm. that system. So it's it's actually quite a complex and interesting problem. Right. 
And is the gov- is Singapore government collecting all that data where people tap their uh, EasyLink cards? These are like, you know, cards that have uh, monetary value to it, and you tap, so, and and then you tap also when you get out, so people they they can know that you know what are the distances that um, you know people traveled, uh, what was the time, mm-hmm. uh, all these. Is that is that is that um, in a, is that something that the government can can uh, use to analyze? people move around in the city so they can have a better um, bus system or semi-bus you know kind of autonomous bus that can um, you know uh, move efficiently throughout the city yeah obviously they they, they use that quite they use that quite efficiently at the, at the moment in terms mm-hmm. of their planning um, and yeah so they have really really good information on the on the transportation demand the big question is really about behavior um, it's a bit hard for us to kind of imagine uh, or, or measure uh, or, or become or come up with really good estimates of what would be the relative willingness to pay for these services mm. under different circumstances. Um, and so we have to kind of test all sorts of combinations of these things, do what's called a sort of a sensitivity analysis mm. to see what... What are the different domains, you know, of operation that you can get? You know, sometimes uh, you'll see that if you set the price relative to other modes of transportation, let's say, let's say you set it too low, mm. right? Then all of a sudden, um, you know, the, the people might want to have a car come right to their door and drop them off right at their door, mm-hmm. and you use you need a massive fleet of vehicles to you know, to serve that kind of demand and yeah. you just end up sitting alone in a car with a bunch of empty robot cars, you know, <laughs> around you on the on the highway. Right. right. So um, you need to really run lots of kind of uh, experiments um, on the computer mm-hmm. before you, uh, you know, make your grand uh, plan for, for how the system is going to mm, operate. Right. Yeah. And how long do you think this will take to actually see fruition you know all these experiments and everything, and, and we could really see uh, these fleets of cars and 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 buses uh, running around. So I think the the capability to um, to plan for it is is maturing pretty fast, and obviously the technological capabilities are maturing um, pretty fast as well. But the, I I would say that that the challenge is probably still a, a, t- a technological one. Okay. Um, I think we can probably plan for the, you know, it's easy to imagine the perfect system of robotic cars. Yeah. And then you just plan for that and and you design your, your neighborhoods. And then maybe you reach 2030. That's usually sort of like the planning mm-hmm. um, horizon that a lot of guys are looking at. And you reach that point and cars are still running over people that are dressed in chicken costumes or <laughs> things like that, right? right. But, um, <laughs> so that's a typical challenge. The, the, the vehicle basically has to make a, a lot of um, predictions about human behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, unfortunately, that's knowledge that's really hard won because mm-hmm. they need to go out there and farm that information. And that means breaking a few eggs, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's yeah. obviously a bit callous, but still, there, there, there's a... Um, and we saw what the reaction is, um, you know, uh, seriously now that when, when something bad happens, like what had happened, you know, in the U.S. The, uh, with, with, the, with the Uber um, mm. that had run somebody over. Yeah. There's, of course, you could argue that that's the case that would have 
you know, any human driver would have been just as susceptible to making an accident, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really hard making the statistical case to people. So even if the autonomous vehicles have a, 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 an accident rate that is an order of magnitude lower than that what human beings are making at the moment, mm -hmm. um, it's still going to be a hard sell. Yeah, because they it's 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 a machine that you know you don't have any real connection. To, right, you know, people have that sense of control, even though they are most drivers uh, are far worse than what they think they are. Yeah, um, when they get on the road. Yeah, I, I mean, think, I, could, I could like think of examples where you know a car is running. And a, and a little girl and an old lady, you know, both come come at at the it, same time. And how is that car going to decide which? Because if it's going to go right, it's going to kill the old lady. It's going to go left. It's going to kill the young girl. How how is it going to decide? That, that taps into exactly those ethical questions. Yeah. That taps into how we actually value human life. Yeah, there's uh, there are actually curves that show you that our our value of a human life sort of peaks around twenty, you know, twenty five. Okay. And then it's, it sharply gets discounted. So there's a at the beginning it's it's relatively you know low, uh, and then it you know the moment that the you know person is viable, then obviously it picks up very sharply, yeah. right? and then it sort of peaks around eighteen to twenty five. Right. Because the usual thing is then oh he had his whole life ahead of him right, yeah, or yeah. her, and then it drops off sharply, <laughs> and that means that the that the robot car needs to have some sense of you know. <laughs> the, the the human condition and how yeah. we make these very subjective and and questionable judgments. Yeah. As well. I mean, like it, it's not that the machines are deciding. I mean, it's the programs that people are going to put into these machines, right? To, yeah. to make that judgment: Are, are you going to kill the old lady? Are you going to kill the young girl? Um, if if and, it was only that transparent, yeah. right? Sometimes yeah. it's also, you know, once these these uh, neural networks become complicated enough, it's kind of hard to really disentangle every mm -hmm. decision from whatever state that actually you know led to that so mm -hmm. it, it becomes a bit of a but it can be a bit of a black box mm -hmm. as well you know in that yeah. respect yeah yeah so i think that that's kind of like um, maybe we're going to sort of see a sort of zeno's paradox mm -hmm. excuse me where um where we simply can't make it good enough until we you know that you know we 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 can't produce an absolute zero, you know, accident rate, and maybe then uh, people will just kick back against it mm -hmm. and say, "No, you know, it's it's not good enough." I mean, look at look at uh, you know other self-driving vehicle accidents like the the two massive yeah. uh, you know accidents of the Boeing's the seven three sevens. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It's obviously not a trivial thing, you know, to um, to let automation mm. uh, in. So I think that's going to be our ultimate limit. I think that if you had to make, make an extrapolation of the current state of technology and, and you had to sort of just say, well, if we reach, you know, a uh, probability of an accident that's, you know, 10% of the current rate of accidents, then sure, 10 years from now, I, I can totally see it happening. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's going to be enough. I, yeah. I think they're going to have to, like, far outperform human drivers in every possible way. That, yeah. Mm. Um. Yeah. And maybe we'll have to make some adjustment also for expectations in terms of the speeds at which these things operate. Maybe it's not going to be like Gattaca, you know, right. where you just zoom past. Maybe it's going to be a bit more like your vacuum robot, right? <laughs> <laughs> the Roomba. <laughs> exactly.
And and in terms of like how people will move as well, I mean, we talked, we, we, you said it's not going to be like Wally where we are on yeah. these like kind of floating chairs and nobody walks anymore. So, you know, if we're not taking these cars, um, what are we going to be doing, you know, on the roads? You know, do you think we're just going to be like riding scooters all the time? I mean, that's kind of similar that's a, that's to that the little park, seat, right? I mean, you know, and then, you know, you're going to have... Uh, all these sensors around the city um, tracking where you're going uh, and then trying to divert you in certain directions uh, so that, you, you know, maybe there wouldn't be too much congestion in the in a pedestrian street or something. How, how is that going to look like? You've obviously given it more thought than I have. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, actually that's one of the challenges that's been put to us, you know, by the, the Urban Redevelopment Authority, they see an increase in the number of deliveries made on these scooters. Uh-huh. And they, that's exactly the kind of question that they're interested in, is how can we kind of keep the, 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 the all of these deliveries and you know and the pedestrian uh-huh. traffic you know, separately, yeah. uh, um, separated. And um, that, that, that's actually a very good idea. You know? uh-huh. If we can... Uh, the, the big problem is exactly knowing where people are Mm. So um, we would have to. Currently, our approach would be t- uh, uh, to design um, the neighborhood in such a way that that it kind of just self-organizes without the need for sensors. Mm. So um, you know, obviously, you know, there's signage and that sort of thing, but but people will still do whatever they want to do. Singapore is always good, you know, also quick to pull out the whip and you know, <laughs> sort of put in a fine or whatever yeah. if, if people are. Um, speeding you know, or speeding, or are they not pushing their their scooter yeah. across the, the the pedestrian bridge or things like that? So those are those are ways. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but if you one approach, you know, if you wanted to do this in a self-organizing way, was maybe if you if you make the um, the walkway really you know tedious for a scooter. Let's say, I mean, there's lots of ways of doing that. You just put in enough bumps until the guy's you know, teeth are chattering so much that he's going to just preferentially route himself onto, let's say, a side street or, or something. Yeah. That's one way of doing it. You can make it more circuitous for the, um, you know, for the uh, motorized vehicle on the pedestrian walkway. So put lots of, um, you know, um, barriers and things in his way. Um, but then obviously also provide the alternative. No, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's no use. Just make giving him a hard time, but not giving providing an alternative. Mm. Uh, so that's one way of doing it. But certainly another way would, you know, to be to impose some sort of technical solution. Mm. Uh, but to get back to your earlier question about um, how does active mobility, you know, feed into it? How do we prevent the sort of Wally situation where you just constantly? Well, firstly, I mean, there, there are two kind of dystopias there. One is the Wally situation where you just never walk, yeah. and you just get picked up at your front door, or even you know get wheeled out on your on something like um, uh, you see if you've seen like these visions of Honda and Toyota mm. where you almost in like a it's almost like a wheelchair, no? Mm-hmm. Sat on and yeah. this kind of takes you inside the house everywhere and sort of you know pod like yeah. slots you in and then so that's that's the Wally situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and there's there's obviously easy ways of preventing that is you just don't allow it. Yeah, don't, don't, don't make don't build it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but uh, 
the, that's the one dystopia. The other dystopia is one where uh, we have uh, something that's like a, a zero marginal cost uh, for mobility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically all that that means is that the, um, you reach a point where these things become so cheap that, you know, because you don't have to pay a driver. That's that's yeah. the biggest that's the biggest thing that you have to pay for actually when you get into a taxi, mm-hmm. right? Um, and this is still in an age where we're paying for for the fuel. Yeah. So if the f- let's say you let's say you're generating an excess of energy, you've got electric vehicles. There's no real you know um, impact in terms of the, um, the the pollution and things that you're generating, yeah. and it's really really cheap. To yeah. use it, mm-hmm. then you get something where basically you can just spend your whole day, you know, in a in a vehicle if you're yeah, exactly. so inclined, right? Yeah, and, and just then, walk for fun. <laughs> <laughs> and that's something that's something kind of uh, uh, scary and that we have to uh, uh, watch out for. And people think that you know you're being silly when you propose that, but mm. I can easily imagine a, a situation, you know, where a new mall opens and they just offer to pay f- for you to. You know, to go there, mm-hmm. right? They yeah. offer to pay for your ride because it is already so cheap. Right, so right. It's not that hard to to imagine. So that's one of the things that we can have to uh, watch out for. Um, how I see us avoiding the first one outside of the, the regulation is is really um, through design. So we have a, we have a really cool urban designer working with us. Her name is Tanvi Maheshwari, and she. Um, uh, and she's been working with us where we kind of come up with a, uh, an approach where um, she produces a, an urban design, mm-hmm. like a proposal for a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, so it says, and it's really detailed, you know, like you, you've got your buildings in there, you know sort of how many people will be living in this building and what sort of things they can do in all the different buildings in the, mm-hmm. in the neighborhood. And then there's the road network and there's like the, 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 the public transport stops and you know, really down to the detail of exactly how big is it, what what sort of vehicles can fit in there, and what mm. mix of vehicles can it accommodate. Uh, and she passes that along to us. And we then run something that's called an agent-based uh, transport simulation. Okay. And this is the closest kind of thing that we can get to running an experiment in, in, in real life, which would obviously, you know, at the moment we simply didn't, don't have those kind of systems in mm. operation, right? So so we kind of, we we make um, some estimations about what are the physics of this future system. So, you know, how, how many cars can you pack into a road? How will they, you know, operate? Um, and all sorts of assumptions about how they, you know, will be operating in terms of the, the services that they would offer to, to the consumer. Mm-hmm. And then we can evaluate that design. So we we produce a, a, produce a bunch of uh, synthetic individuals or agents, mm-hmm. and they then have to do things all over, you know, in that neighborhood and, and leave the neighborhood as well, obviously, to go other places. And we then see how the transport system that we propose operates within that design. And then right. we see, oh, no, okay, we, we get a lot, lot of congestion here, we see that there's a queue of vehicles building up, like the queues of taxis that you see on the way to the airport. Yeah, uh, and then we can say, okay, well, what what can we do here? Um, uh, maybe we should move this bus stop, you know, uh, a bit closer to the building or further mm-hmm. away, or um, put in an extra stop. We look at things like 
how far do people actually walk? Mm-hmm. Because the, the agents have been tuned to, to behave at least as, in, in a similar way to, to how we behave currently with mm. the sort of options that are open to us. Right. Um, and, and we're refining that even more and more. So right. like right now, if you had to walk 500 meters to reach a bus stop, you might do that. But if you had to walk 500 meters and cross a, a, an overpass bridge, yeah, then you're going to think twice because you're yeah. going to climb all those stairs. Uh, in fact, we found through some uh, my colleagues, uh, Michael van Echermont and, and Alex Erath, they, they found um, through some of their earlier studies that people are willing to walk as much as four minutes, four or five minutes, I think, uh, oh, you're gonna be to f- avoid that. Right. Know, to avoid that sort of oh, thing. Okay. So, we put all of that into the design then as well. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, she will create a, a detailed pedestrian network and we say, okay, well, this is a covered walkway or this is not, um, because in Singapore that matters a lot. You know, the sun yeah. is really bright and it can rain and whatever. Yeah. Uh, and we know from experiments how how people, what, what kind of things they prefer. So you want to rather walk down a, a, a street with lots of shops and things and Maybe some, you know, greenery, rather than walk by the side of a highway, right? Mm. You'll see that the the kind of perceived walking time for the same distance increases dramatically the more unpleasant it becomes. So mm. it feels like you're walking a, a lot further. Or if you have to now climb this thing and climb down on the other side, mm. it will feel a lot worse for the agents that we have in there that are like these synthetic people. Right. So you can. You can then play around with the design and you can start adjusting it and, and, and really immediately see what's the feedback in terms of how well the transport system performs. Um, and you can, you can see what are the sort of configurations that you need to, in order to sort of hit those targets that you want in terms of the, um, you know, the, 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 the positive activities you know, that, the, that the agents perform. Mm-hmm. That's a very long-winded answer, but yeah, yeah. That's kind of that's kind of where we're going with that, right? And then in these, I mean, people, human activities are not really static, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they evolve through time, and then even if if there was a building that housed um, a, a a retail shop of no um, particular popularity amongst people, and all of a sudden there's a there's a Starbucks, and all of a sudden people started to you know move in that direction. I mean, how how does how do you how does cities like actually capture? capture all that and then you know redesign the whole transportation system or or kind of things so that you know you could divert all that or something you know like it's it's always you know we're always changing right there's no just because you know the past five years people were walking like this or 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 you know using transportation and in in a manner doesn't mean it's going to be the same in five years time right because things change yeah so there are a couple of answers to then mm. uh, I would say that I mean the first instrument of control and especially in Singapore where things are really mm. well planned mm. is your master plan mm. um, excuse me Singapore is quite unique in the sense that they um, you know it's it's one government that's been in power for how many years now since the 60s I guess yeah right so it's uh, it's um, and that means that that they remain um, you know, you, you can't just walk away and it's somebody else's problem, you know, whoever is going to take over from you next, mm-hmm. right? So there's a high degree of of, 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 um, of being uh, accountable for, for the, the plans that you make. Mm-hmm. 
So in that sense, it's you know a, a lot different from a lot of the world. In that sense, they they really have to plan for that sort of you know for exactly those sort of futures that might unfold, like you're mm. saying. Um, and the main instrument that they have for that is something that they call the master plan. Mm. Um, so where they they make very careful decisions about what sorts of development are allowed you know allowed where mm. um, over over time. Um, and you know, there's a whole uh, bureaucratic process. With uh, if you want to change the prospective use of a of a, a parcel of land, mm. and there's a whole process that you have to go through before yeah. that can happen. And then at least it means that you can change your plans, or you can evaluate your plans that you have and see is is that change viable, or is it going to introduce a you know uh, is it going to make a mess of everything? Mm. So that's that's the one way to do it. The other way is uh, through like the single mentioned before sensitivity analysis where you you run a bunch of scenarios uh, and you say what if I'm wrong you know let's say this is going to be let's say exactly like you say I, I, I don't anticipate the building of the Starbucks and and this neighborhood taking off for, mm-hmm. for whatever reason yeah. but you can you can run these experiments on the computer mm-hmm. and see how the neighborhood will perform under, under a number of different circumstances mm-hmm. and then you can um, uh, again, you know, begin to anticipate it, right, and say that okay, well, if if this happens, then I should do this, this, and this mm-hmm. to to deal with that situation. Mm-hmm. And currently, like human beings are doing this, but uh, like in the future, would pe- you know machines be doing all the actually analysis? to a large extent, uh, AI is already starting to do all okay. of this. Yeah. Right. So there's um, in fact, at this uh, urban uh, what's it. Urban Sustainability uh, R and D con- Congress that they'd had a couple of days ago here in Singapore. Mm. There was a whole session on um, the science of cities and how uh, more and more you know um, agencies are becoming reliant on on AI to mm. inform their planning process to kind of pick up on the signals that we don't we aren't capable of simply mm. because the system is so complex. Yeah. Yeah. So that's definitely happening, right. and obviously we're just getting more and more data across right. so many more domains. As it's becoming easier to kind of join these data sets together, um, you can start to make sense across uh, a lot of it, and, and right. hopefully pick up on those signals um, before you know things get out of hand. Yeah. Right, I see. And then are we building more, trying to build or create more data to feed into this AI so that it can you know kind of turn more, you know, uh, useful, you know, ideas uh, for us to use in, in this smart city um, you know, concept, you know, because, uh, you know, that means that there's going to be like more sensors everywhere, mm-hmm. people are going to be tracked, you know, and, um, you know, it just, it, it seems like there's going to be uh, so much, um, you know, technology all over the, all over the city that are, you know, trying to make data out of everything that it almost seems like it's going to be like an overflow yeah. of data um, just because you, do, you want to keep like feeding, you know, data into this AI so that it'll, it'll come, you know, it'll turn out something interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's this, there, there's a possibility that, you know, um, you might be seeing things that simply aren't there simply because it's an overflow of information. Yeah. But I, I kind of, I've got a... Uh, I, th- I think that we maybe 
really don't understand AI in, in a sense. You know, it's not like us where we reach a certain point of information overflow. More information usually in these machine learning models is always better. So uh-huh. They usually perform better at predicting the more information you throw at them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's kind of an information theoretic thing. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking on the correction there because I'm not, I'm not a computer scientist, yeah. uh, but I do use these things a, you know, a fair bit. And that's generally what we find is if, if the model doesn't predict well, then usually if you add in more information from another source, then suddenly the prediction improves because now there's something that kind of uh, can explain mm-hmm. what you're seeing that, you know, happening. Um, what I see um, as an, you know, I think it's more a question of access, really, of how how do you manage to connect all of these things up mm. to, and make it um, equitably, you know, accessible. I think that's that's kind of a uh, going to be a, a more of a challenge rather than so much a, a question of the of an information overload. Mm. And then, of course, privacy, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, that's the that's the biggest thing um and i mean we haven't even talked about blockchain uh yeah. yet but that's kind of where i i, I see uh, a lot of potential the um the, the fact that we can use that kind of technology to have more control over what kind of information gets you know released to to mm. and what level of access are we willing to give to different people mm. And even to things like, you know, getting to topics like the monetization of my own data, the things that yeah. I'm generating, there's a lot of stuff happening, you know, yeah. from what I could see in the, in the blockchain. Uh, yeah. Source, uh, yeah, what we don't want to see is, you know, government owning all that data just because they run right. the city and then selling it off to private corporations for, you know, uh, yeah. I don't know, uh, um, you know, making more tax revenues or something, right? I've heard some interesting perspectives on this idea of, uh, especially in this day and age of, of artificial intelligence. Um, and I mean, this is an aside, but the, the uh, listening to Sam Harris's podcast mm-hmm. on the topic of you know things like Facebook and so on, and firms that actively kind of um, you know mine your data. Yeah. The perspective that this author had given was that you're not the product which is usually the case when you're not mm. paying for a service, you're really the fuel. Yeah. Right? Mm. So in the sense that this thing is learning from you in order to replace you right. <laughs> ultimately. <laughs> it's kind of scary, right? Uh, so I, I, I hope that there are these you know, ways of, of not just monetizing the data that we generate, that these things will get trained on in the end, but, but even um, licensing models that you, can, that you can have some sort of persistent ownership, especially mm. once... Once you get replaced by them, you know, <laughs> that you can somehow share in the, the, the profits right. you know, that they're going to be generating. Mm. But yeah, that's neither here nor there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, you were saying that before um, we start, even started this conversation that, you know, we can use uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency uh, for payments mm. when we were on these, um, you know, uh, automated cars uh, or even, you know, MRTs, subways. Uh, that we're using um, in Singapore or any, anywhere in the world that we start building smart cities. I mean, how how does that kind of you know collide? Yeah, so so that's um, that kind of feeds into you know this uh, 
rather hyped up concept of mobility as a service. Mm. Really, all that that means is that you you have a uh, you have a good idea of where everything that you can ride on sits in the city. So you know, you know, there's 500 horses here and 200 scooters there, and you know, there's a, a shared car there, um, and you hopefully don't own all of that stuff yourself. So there's some sort of way of, of paying people uh, and and you know uh, navigating the complexities of different payment systems. Typically, you know what is proposed. Like for instance, I I I, I uh, I'm actually involved as a in a in a kind of a foundation that um, that's advocating for uh, you know ways of rethinking the mobility system. It's called Travel Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm. I'm um, uh, I hopefully will be ramping up some activities in, in ASEAN for you know for this foundation and really get people to start talking about this a bit more. But typically, what you can do is to just start a new platform right? mm-hmm. um, where uh, small players can you know hook up into. There's, there are other concepts out there very similar, also blockchain enabled, mm-hmm. um, like IOMob instance in the in the US um, and the idea is that you uh, rather than trying to you know deal with every uh, possible payment system uh, and uh, you just get people to sign up onto this platform and whether you're uber or grab or whatever a new mobility company you say okay to the user okay you want to go from year to year these are your options you can jump on a horse and ride it to the MRT and then you can get off and get into a you know a robot car mm. on the other end and each one of these things is going to be belong to a different authority and you have this uh, homogeneous payment system with mm. whatever your token is on the you know on the blockchain system and it also becomes a means of enforcement to prevent bad actors from saying that they're going to serve the ride and, and not doing it mm. in the end. Obviously, the idea being also that once things become autonomous, then the, the number of bad actors you know, will, will decrease. Mm. But that's really, that's really what it comes down to, um, mobility as a service, is being able to connect all, everything up. And that idea is also that as, you know, as the amount of sensing in the city increases, we'll have a much better idea of where everything sits. Because mm-hmm. um, you know how frustrating it is when you... When you know you had these uh, bicycle sharing services, and yeah. it, it tells you there's a bicycle there, and then you get there, and there's no, you know, yeah. the thing is lying in a ditch or something. Yeah, right. So I think that's uh, that's kind of what we're seeing uh, through sensing and so on. Um, uh, ubiquitous computing and so on. We'll have a good sense of where everything is and kind of what the state of that thing is, as mm. well, in order to, to to deliver these kinds of solutions. Mm. Uh, in, in a bit like um, you know Grab, that's kind of pretty dominant in, in Singapore and Southeast Asia. They have a payment system already mm. where you know you can pay. Well, they, they even tried to. They did buy a bicycle sharing company, which flopped anyway. But you know, you with with their Grab Pay, you were able to pay for your car rides, your bicycle, uh, any yeah. food deliveries, and all these other things. You can I can even send you um, uh, money. Like you don't really need. You don't um, need a blockchain necessarily yeah, to make exactly. that happen. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, those kind of companies will argue that, you know, why do you need this sort of thing? Yeah. 
course, the idea is that you um, uh, having such an ecosystem would open up everybody's data to everybody else. I think that's kind of also this the idea behind Travel Spirit. That's the idea behind you know guys like IOMob as well. That um, the the blockchain, besides being a payment system, is also a, a ledger, right? It's mm -hmm. a database. Mm -hmm. It's a shared database that allows everybody to see what's going on everywhere. Yeah. So it would allow smaller players to, you know, to, for instance, uh, offer their ride or have, uh, you know, be subcontracted by, you know, by bigger players in the same system because mm -hmm. they can see, you know, what's happening everywhere. There will be information about the willingness to pay uh, being shared across the the, the entire platform, mm -hmm. so those are the you know the the the, the upshots. Um, but it is a hard sell, mm -hmm. exactly. You know mm -hmm. because of course if you're already a big player, why would you want to you know get onto this sort of thing? Yeah. Even if we can demonstrate that it's going to benefit everybody in the end, mm -hmm. if there is more data sharing uh, mm -hmm. you know, across such a platform, and um, and obviously, uh, responsible data sharing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, across such platforms. Yeah, I mean, in a way, you know, after all this Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and stuff, I mean, you know, I think more and more people should demand that their data is stored in blockchain, mm -hmm. that it's encrypted and and, and it's all um, pseudo anonymous, um, rather than you know having your old all your you know personal data out there. Yeah. Um, and obviously for me, like personally, like, you know, Facebook's Libra is also kind of something that, you know, scares no, the shit out of me. That, yeah, but, you know, this is for completely another topic. Um, but, uh, yeah, just going back to, okay, so then we talked about cars. What about, like, uh, intercontinental travel? I mean, is that something that you guys think about? or, Because, or, you know, like, airplanes haven't really innovated that much aside from the software that they use and then how they design the airplane, but the speed of airplanes haven't really changed that much, right? I mean, is there even a way that we can go from Singapore to L.A. in like four hours instead of 16? You know, is, that, is, that, is there something that you guys think about? Um, I would say that, you know, we're, we're a bit more sort of um, concerned with the, the urban condition, although mm. in previous... Um, you know, in, in previous projects, we had looked at, at uh, development around these aviation hubs mm. um, and, you know, how, uh, you know, how the city connects up to, to other cities and how these things are, are interrelated. Um, but, yeah, in terms of aviation, you know, we, we, we're not currently doing that much work. Mm. Um, certainly, I just know that, you know, it's... The biggest concern is obviously still the the the, the impact, the greenhouse gas impact mm. of, of uh, that mode of transportation. Um, and it's interesting to listen to like ads by KLM where they kind of actively discourage you to use them <laughs> as a service. Right. They say, "Do you really need to travel? Do you, you know, do you really need to be in, at that meeting in person?" Right. So it's, it was kind of jarring to hear a. a, a and um, a company kind of actively <laughs> discouraging you to, to use them, but maybe we'll start to see a bit more of that. You know, it's um, yeah, definitely. Uh, more and more, I think the everybody's working styles are changing as well. Mm. You know, gig economy. We talk about that quite a lot, but uh, you know, everybody's kind of not don't need to go 
uh, toward an office anymore. Everybody's like in, working individually, and and you know it seems like that's the way people are going. Although yeah. you know they're saying that the urban population is going to grow much much bigger. So I don't know how that fits into that. I've heard even of of a concept of uh, in some Scandinavian countries of flight shaming. They call it flight shaming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. So if you, if you un travel unnecessarily, yeah, then uh, you know your people will kind of look down on you, which is kind of an interesting. Uh, you know, it's a nice culture to have. <laughs> yeah, it's, right? I guess part of it is like instilling you know uh, right cultures mm. into place where you know uh, you know it's not like fat shaming, but like you know flight shaming. Uh, using you know dirty fuel, yeah. um, you know, or even with energy, you know, why aren't you choosing you know renewable energy over you know burning coal? You know that kind of um, you know shaming mm -hmm. um, needs probably be instilled before we can really get this smart city thing going. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, it's yeah, certainly cultures will have to change uh, and. Shaming is a very effective way of doing that, um, but also maybe pride in 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 you know in choosing something that's more um, sustainable. Mm -hmm. Certainly, we speak we can see signs of that. You know, the the um, I, I would say the younger generation is probably a bit more attuned to mm -hmm. um, to their impact on you know on on the environment. Yeah. So maybe we'll see a bit more of that happening. Um, but like you say, there's, there, there are also, um, you know, uh, from one geographical region to the next, the cultures might be, you know, radically different. So yeah. to somehow propagate this across different yeah. cultures is going to be right. It's going to be a challenge. Yeah. yeah. Some exciting stuff that's happening, at least in terms of um, sea transport. I've oh. recently heard about is there's a, a push to go back to wind-powered sea transport. Really. Yeah. <laughs> That seems, uh, although we haven't done any work on that, I, I yeah. at least find that sort of ex an exciting well, I guess concept. You could use the wind, not like a sail, right? I mean, you use wind power to like fuel fuel the speed of the cars, or are you no, they're using the wind directly, but it's through using the Magnus effect. So um, uh, it's this really weird. I think it's called Flitner is the guy who built the Flitner rider. I was telling one of my colleagues about this the other day because it was a it was on a podcast. Um, where you have this massive spinning rotor, mm -hmm. and just like the spin in a golf ball, there's uh, if there's a you know a, a, um, wind blowing across it, it, it actually causes uh, lift, like on you know the lift on an airplane. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So it's a really weird thing to see. You see this ship with this massive cylinder, right? Uh, and and it's moving forward completely soundlessly because, oh. and it's uh, it's more efficient than a sail, right? Actually. Um, but obviously, you know, they still have um, uh, engines um, to back them up when there's, when there's no yeah, wind. There's no wind yeah. And the current system, the, the guy that argued that maybe, you know, our current logistics, our expectations is to have stuff within two days. So, mm -hmm. again, it comes back to culture change. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe we shouldn't have it in two days. Maybe we should wait a couple of days mm -hmm. uh, and get used to that. You know, get used to maybe a slower, you know, uh, Get back to a slower life, like we've right. been living maybe right. 60 years ago. Well, I guess people on cruises nowadays they don't really care about getting to one place at yeah. a, a you know quickly, right? They just want to enjoy the ride rather than uh, the actual destination itself. Exactly. There's a famous TED talk by uh, Rory, Rory Sutherland. I knew I was going to stumble over that with <laughs> ours. Um, 
this advertising guy who said that rather than build high-speed rails, mm. if even as an advertising guy, what he would suggest is take a slow train and just have, uh, you know, uh, supermodels serve the drinks and people will ask that they you know, slow down even more right so right. <laughs> i'll definitely so, get, get on that so there's lo loads of behavioral changes that we can induce just right. by kind of rethinking it from a social perspective mm, yeah. interesting and and for you peter i mean you you grew up in johannesburg and 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 how how did you really get into this this space you know what, what was your journey um yeah so i i actually grew up in uh, in a small town uh, Next to Mozambique, on the, oh okay. Next to the Kruger National Park, and then the typical thing is you get out of the small towns and go to the city. The moment yeah. you, you know you uh, you can leave the house, uh, and that's how I came to uh, Pretoria, Johannesburg, and I um, had a bit of a detour in life and worked in television production for a while there, um, but then ultimately became interested in uh, after reading some books about complexity science and about um, really how they're starting to use the tools of physics in mm. the domain of social sciences. I, I really found that kind of fascinating. And then I'd gone back to, uh, you know, to do a, a master's degree in, um, you know, in industrial engineering, which also deals with, you know, creating models and representations of the world. Mm. And we got stuck in on... Um, Solving the, the, the some of the logistics problems that we had in South Africa, uh, South Africa, all of the deliveries have to be, have to be made during the day. So mm -hmm. The roads are constantly congested with huge um, trucks, right? And uh, especially in Johannesburg, there's there are one or two famous hills, you know, where where the trucks just don't give a damn, so they take up all three lanes trying to overtake each other right. on, on an uphill. And then that just causes massive congestion throughout the you know right. the entire system. So my my professor at that stage, Johan Jubar, he wanted to um, solve this problem, and said, "Why don't we just do deliveries at night?" And they said, "Well, we don't have a public transportation system in South Africa. Mm -hmm. um, we only have these minibus taxis, and they stop operating at ten o'clock at night." Right. And so he said, "Okay, let's just fix the transportation system." Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was his approach, and that's how we got stuck in with. Um, with you know looking at transportation mm -hmm. and then it became apparent that you you know the, the the system in South Africa is so complicated because of this um this minibus system mm -hmm. that there weren't any models at that stage that can really that you can really use in the planning perspective to make sort of mm -hmm. you know strategic decisions about how to right. move forward and that's how we met up with um you know, with uh, the developers of this uh, Asian-based technology that we're using, the professor called Kai Nagel from mm -hmm. the Technical University of Berlin, and then uh, Kai Axhausen, who also turned out to be my thesis supervisor in, for my PhD in the end. Mm -hmm. That's uh, yeah, a long, right. <laughs> long and story. And you did your PhD at the ETH Zurich? Uh, yeah, I did it actually right here in Singapore um, oh. at the Future Cities Laboratory, which is oh, okay. a, a resource center of ETH mm -hmm. Zurich. Mm -hmm. And and this this project with the ETH Zurich Future Cities uh, does is this a like a collaboration with the government or is it with the university? Um, you know how 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 long is this going to keep going? So it's a uh, we're we're. Established by the National Research Foundation, so the Office of the Presidency, is, oh. um, uh, and they 
yeah, they're the ones paying the bill. <laughs> and um, they, the concept was really to bring a, a, a bunch of, of the world's best universities together in one place. Right. So if you go to um, the, just across the highway from the National University of Singapore, mm. um, there's a campus where you'll find uh, TU Munich, uh, you'll find MIT, you'll find us, you'll find uh, UC Berkeley, you'll find Yale. Right. All of them stuck together. So it's a bit of a, I think it was probably a bit jarring for a lot of the colleagues at the university right. to suddenly have, you know, so much competition right across right. the road. But I think, in, in you know, over time we've, we've, we've formed really good relationships and a lot of complementary research. And that's now, for instance, how we're, uh, you know, involved in and some research projects with the uh, National University of Singapore as one mm. of the, the partners. So we've kind of integrated quite well. And all these people from different universities are all collaborating together in this Future Cities Increasingly so, yeah. So, uh, I mean, Future Cities Laboratory is one of the programs. When you have the Smart Future Mobility Program. Mm -hmm. And uh, the NRF regularly introduces uh, grant calls to, to really uh, foster um, interinstitutional collaboration mm -hmm. um, with, you know, within that campus and... Uh, more across uh, Singapore. So mm -hmm. typically nowadays the projects that we launch are really problem-focused uh, mm -hmm. projects and it involves a lot of disciplines, a lot of different um, mm. educational institutions as well as agencies. Mm -hmm. So like I said, you know, for instance, for this, um, this autonomous vehicle uh, urban design um, project, it's what's it, one, two, three universities and then five government agencies wow. altogether huh. working, uh, uh, working on it. So what are the other projects that you're working on at the moment? So uh, we're, we're a small group, but we actually have uh, four projects that we're working on concurrently. Um, so uh, we have two projects in active mobility, and there it's really uh, my two colleagues that are currently based in Zurich, Michael van Egermond and, and Professor Alex Erath. Uh, they 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 launch these projects, and we have a, a local PhD, a guy called Mohsen Nazemi, who's uh, working on a cycling simulator. Mm -hmm. um, that's quite a, that's quite fun. It's uh, using virtual reality, and obviously you know a, a physical bicycle. Mm -hmm. um, you get in there and you uh, cycle on the typical Singaporean road. Yeah. And uh, sometimes you're on the road, sometimes you're on dedicated cycling infrastructure, sometimes you're dodging pedestrians. Mm -hmm. And he puts a sensor on you and he measures your uh, rate of um, kind of excitation. Really? And, wow. Uh, there, I'm sure there's a, a more proper word for it. So is he on, like on a, like a spin cycle and with like these goggles on? Yeah, you get the goggles on uh, and then you, you start cycling and it's got you know, sensors to pick up when things are actually mm. moving and when you're braking and the, uh, the galvanic sensor or the thing that measures your, your skin conductance and other, uh, you know, um, things like your heart rate and whatever. It, um, it's constantly monitoring you as you cycle through this environment. Mm -hmm. And obviously because you're using VR, it can pick up on when you're turning your head to pick right, up right. you're looking at stuff. So you're cycling and then... You know, it's got sound as well, so you can hear the bus approaching and mm. you can see people get kind of a little bit jittery. Right. Um, we had 
some problems with people almost falling off the bike because they're you know, trying to get out of the way. So we've kind of they've really constrained the experiment now in a way that that you know make people at least feel safe enough you know, right. uh, in the, in this virtual environment. And you can see uh, how people respond if there's a uh, you know like a, a left turn coming up. You can see their awareness increasing. So mm -hmm. uh, and that's obviously very useful in in terms of. Um, uh, planning what kind of infrastructure to you know, to build where. Mm -hmm. A large part of that was really just figuring out if the stuffing, you know, if this thing is giving you something that you can really interpret as kind of being representative of, of real behavior. So he's done right. a, a fair bit of work on that. So is this like trying to map out or redesign the city so that the cycling experience is better? Or like what what, what is this for? Yeah, so that's obviously one of the goals. Singapore is investing quite a bit in their cycling infrastructure. Okay. And um, but it's expensive and space is limited, so you, you usually can't just you know say one size fits all. Mm -hmm. You have to know what are the trade offs that you're making. You know when you're building one kind of thing here and another thing there. Mm -hmm. uh, and and this kind of tool is um, quite useful because you can you can produce a pretty uh, you know, plausible uh, realization of an existing neighborhood and um, see how people react. And more specifically, how different user groups react, because that's obviously important as well. Mm. You might be more willing to cycle, you know, uh, on the road if you were cycling by yourself rather than when you had your daughter sitting on the back of the bicycle. Mm. Right? Right. So all of those things they take into consideration mm. as well. Right. And then the other research is uh, obviously there's the autonomous vehicle you know, project. Um, uh, the other active mobility project is, is really Michael van Egermond again and, and Alex. They are looking at um, pedestrian comfort in high pedestrian activity areas. So they have a number of sites, that, and this is again a project that they're doing for, you know, for the agencies. Mm -hmm. um, where they look at really high pedestrian activity areas and they really counted the number of people walking across every possible walkway in places like Orchard and in Jurong yeah. East. And then get a sense of, you know, what kind of design interventions can you make to, um, you know, to uh, make the experience uh, better for people who are actually walking there and also maybe kind of distribute, you know, the, the load in, uh, in, in, um, uh, in plausible ways. Um, that project's uh, still ongoing, and then besides the autonomous vehicle project, we also have uh, uh, quite a fair bit of work going on in the field of data privacy, mobility, mm. specifically mobility data privacy. And there it's uh, really my colleagues uh, Sergio Ordonez, uh, who's also working on the autonomous vehicle thing, uh, and, uh, and uh, Temo Anda, a, a Mexican guy, Mm -hmm. Who's a PhD with us, um, and they're working with uh, Singtel DataSpark, okay. uh, which is a you know, DataSpark is the geoanalytics um, uh, arm of of, of Singtel, um, and they're looking at cell phone data, um, and how can we use it in a kind of a way that we can absolutely guarantee the privacy of the people that are generating that data, okay. but still get useful things out of it. Mm -hmm. um, and what we're doing there, for instance, um, is 
uh, Timo builds a thing that he calls his traveler generator machine. Mm. And really what this is, is it's, a, it's an algorithm that uses um, just general statistics of generated by all of these users you know, mm-hmm. in, the, in the cellular phone system. Yeah. So when I say statistics, it's, it's things like, you know, uh, from 12 o'clock until 1 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, 20,000 people travel from Orchard to Badok, for mm-hmm. instance, right? Um, but other, th- other things are more interesting statistics. For instance, it says that if you find yourself in Badok at uh, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, mm-hmm. then you are, let's say, 60% likely to go somewhere that you haven't been before or mm. you are 40% likely to return to a location that you'd visited before. Mm. That sounds a, like a really weird thing to, you know, to put yeah. out. But again, because we're just dealing with a large, uh, you know, with a number there mm. rather than with an individual, yeah. with, if you have these kinds of statistics, it becomes possible for you to create synthetic individuals. Right that have travel patterns that look a lot like the patterns that we have in the actual system. Mm-hmm. So you can create any number of synthetic um, travelers mm-hmm. uh, using these kind of statistics, and they will move in a way that's, that's kind of like how the real population moves. So if you had to kind of count together all the kilometers that they drive during the day, mm-hmm. you'll see that, oh, it looks a bit like how Singaporeans travel. Right. In fact, a fair bit. To the yeah. extent, you know, within only a few percentage points, mm-hmm. um, and that means that you have a really, really good substitute for the actual data. Mm-hmm. That um, you know, that's uh, that's the real privacy yeah. concern. Right. So you can use this synthetic stream of data, and that means you can share it between agencies completely safely, not have to worry, you know, that you're compromising any person's, uh, you know, uh, identity, identity, yeah. thing like that. Um, so that's incredibly uh, useful, um, you know, as a uh, as a you know a way to plan for transport, you know, f- using the the, the 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 sensing capabilities that we have, but not compromising right. uh, privacy in any way, shape, or form. Right. But but the Singtel actually knows all their customers where they're moving around in the city. They actually go to extreme measures to try and limit their knowledge. You know? Okay. So, um, for instance, you know when um, you know when Timo goes in to work on this stuff, he's, mm-hmm. he really really goes into a white room mm-hmm. where that's kind of sealed off and you know okay. air gapped um, from. There's no way that you can leave with 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 any of that data. Uh-huh. And you know the systems are designed you know to scramble uh, uh, you know people's personal information. So they go mm-hmm. to great lengths already within the organization to wall this off completely. And to um, to really really limit access, mm-hmm. and their greatest concern, obviously, you know, um, is how do they can how can they give absolute guarantees mm-hmm. to their client base that you know that they're not compromising, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, their their their, uh, their privacy in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they they really try their best. There's only a very limited number of people that have access, you know, to that data, and that access right. is very very carefully monitored. Oh, mm. wow. Okay. Interesting. So no, I think they go they, they go to great lengths, and obviously, you know, for for cellular providers like that, it's it's exo- um, 
they need to, you know, the the. Uh, if you think about the prohibitive costs of, especially once we're going into things like 4G, right? Uh-huh. We think, okay, 4G is just another G. Right. It's a hell of a deal, actually. Uh, I, I spoke to a, um, a very uh, interesting Korean researcher the other day, and I, unfortunately his name now escapes me. But he said that, that um, Moore's law doesn't apply to cellular infrastructure. Okay. Because it's not just digital. It's also analog. Mm-hmm. The, the transmitters, you know, are... are Analog, so yeah. the digital signal still needs to get translated into something analog. Right, and the four G technology, simply you know, in, in order to, to produce uh, uh, those levels of bandwidth, yeah. just needs a lot more of that analog technology packed in there. Right, um, and and that and that technology doesn't scale with Moore's law. Right, it's pretty st- stable. stable. So yeah. the, the costs are incredibly high, mm. and you as a user won't be willing. You know, to pay that cost, you want that level of connectivity, but you're not going to be willing to now suddenly pay twice as much for your cellular bill. Right? Yeah, exactly. Somebody needs to pay for that. Yeah. So one should understand that there's a, you know, that they, there is a desperate need in order to provide the level of service that we want. That the companies need to make money in more than one way, right? You know, than just charging it to the to the end user. Yeah. But they are at least you know responsible enough to say that okay. That this doesn't mean that we now just throw out our users' privacy. Yeah. How can we develop products that we can then, you know, that can be used in all sorts of useful ways that ultimately produces this sort of smart city right. we all want, but not compromise their, their their privacy. Right. And so they're obviously, you know, they're keen to see these kinds of approaches, you know, that, mm. we, that we're looking at that allows them to monetize that data completely safely um, right. and to be able to, to then introduce these future technologies without mm. pushing the cost down to the, the end user. Right, right. Yeah, with the, with the 5G coming along. Then. Oh, sorry, 4G. That's a, <laughs> it should be 5G. Please, I'm, I'm revealing my age here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm still stuck on 4G. Yeah, okay. so 5G. Exactly, the 5G yeah. is the thing that's going to be so yeah. expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. That's a... Um, so you, they're just going to have to pack so many more of those transmitters in there at, uh, you know, at cost. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we're not going to be willing to pay that cost. Right. And how, how do these companies actually kind of make uh, us, our identity, uh, pseudonymous? I mean, you know, obviously they want some data, right? They want to know that I'm a male, my age, somewhat, you know, of my... Uh, you know, uh, racial profile, whatever it is. I mean, you know, th- there is some data that they actually need. May- is it just the name that that's kind of like? So that, that's a, that's exactly the sort of old approach to this issue, as mm-hmm. to just kind of give a randomized ID, uh-huh. but then you could still follow the guy around, and then if you if I saw that oh okay this guy goes from you know uh, Queenstown to let's say to this area and then from there to there and it does this on a regular basis then I can very quickly uh, identify you because there's only a number of people that would make those uh-huh. combination of trips right uh-huh. um, but that's exactly what they're trying to avoid right so there's no individual data that they that they actually release uh-huh. um, and they uh, you know the, exactly with these kinds of approaches what we're trying to do is come up with ways that you can produce a th- let's say you know, I would say mid thirties sort of dude uh, with a certain you know uh, high income bracket, mm-hmm. and he's going to be traveling 
uh, around, but he's not going to go exactly where you're going. He's not going to live where you exactly live. Mm. But if you have enough of these these synthetic guys moving around, mm. then you're going to see the levels of congestion that you see in Singapore. Mm. You're going to see approximately the same patterns of footfall by different demographic types in different parts of the of the city. Mm. So simply because the statistics pan out, if you know, if there's enough mm. of something happening, then it's really what really starts to matter more is the the larger patterns you know, mm. that emerge. Of course, uh, uh, it's a completely separate question when you come to to uh, really location based services where real time information is mm. important. Mm. The, the stuff that we're working on with them is more around um, uh, ways that you can publish data after the fact mm. in a safe way but um, when it comes to uh, uh, real time location and things like that then it's more an issue of um, you know the frameworks that are put in place in terms of the smart devices yeah. and you can see you know that the companies they ask you a list of questions are you willing to give this this or this mm -hmm. or this yeah. um, and uh, you know obviously to, to a large extent it's also about the trust relationship that exists between you mm. and that service provider. Yeah. About what level of uh, access they really uh, you know, give away. Yeah. I mean, this real location thing is like, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, in my limited knowledge, there's going to be like cameras everywhere mm. and they're going to do facial recognition so they know who you are, your age and all these things and then going to track you everywhere. Mm. You know, that that was kind of the, the, the level I was thinking uh, about what's, that can definitely still happen. Yeah, yeah, right. And and there, I mean, then it becomes a question of the extent to which you trust the the really, I guess, the government and institutions, mm. or you know, unless these devices are owned by private companies, mm. that you know, it becomes more of a, a legislative uh, issue about. Mm. And I and and we know that those those things are relatively slower to catch up with. Mm. Um, with what people really want, right? Mm. Um, I mean, the what's it called? The GDPR? Or? GDPR, yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it's how many years has it been? And it's only now that this sort of thing is really starting to kick mm. in. So I certainly, I think I, I think it's a valid concern. that mm. uh, Maybe it's not just your own device, but all of the other devices that you, mm. that you have to be concerned about. Um, and... We only find out after the fact that oh, this agency has actually been using you know facial recognition yeah. for so long, you know, to do different kind of things. Yeah, I remember like Facebook had this. I don't know if it still has it because I don't really use it anymore. But um, you know, that once once I go to a certain location, it will tell me where my friends are if if they're like five kilometers within radius or something like that. I remember there was some kind of... Amazingly like that. allowed that stuff yeah, to happen. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's 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 kind of like... It, that technology is already here, right? So yeah. imagine like where... Like I can imagine where like, you know, uh, you know 10, 10, 20 years from now, you know, a, a super hyper version of that uh, is happening across all, um, you know, kind of companies or data that, that are spread around different companies uh, knowing that where you are you know, what you're doing, and then, then they want to sell you something or, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, it obviously, it depends a lot on the company culture. I think, you know, for instance, like our, the guys that we're working with, they are actively working towards, you know, uh, uh, privacy and guarantees of privacy. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, there are other 
big tech companies like Apple is also one of the, you know, probably one of the better players. And mm. um, but then Google argues that you know privacy is, a, you know, is a is a luxury item, right? Um, so I think it's, it's still a very very tough problem. And I think you know once we start talking about uh, just anybody putting up a sensor somewhere. Uh, I certainly don't see that happening in Singapore, you know, that you can just go around and sticking up, you know, cameras everywhere you mm -hmm. want to. But um, maybe maybe this is a good test bit to see how, you know, you can systematically deal with that, with that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, it could, you know, it could be, uh, it could be quite scary, actually. Yeah. If you think about it, if, if you know, if, if every single thing out there, you know, has a camera, um, and maybe if even you know, uh, in a more dystopian vision, just because it has a camera doesn't mean it has the processing capability, but you know, to to to, to do the recognizing. Mm -hmm. But of course, it's just information, so it would just get transmitted to somewhere where that processing capability, you know, right. actually exists. Right. Mm -hmm. So well, I mean, it's a double-edged sword, right? If you're if you suddenly have a, a a sickness and you're, you know, you're you're on the you're on the street and you fall down, mm -hmm. and because of the cameras are actually watching you, maybe you know, an emergency um, ambulance, um, you know, flying object flies and and helps. That could you, be right? the positive. It, yeah. yeah, certainly. Yeah. Oh, but of course, a dystopian vision of it would be that you know you're walking down the street and you, you know, maybe you show a a, a, a facial tick or something, and then the Medical insurance gets alerted. That this guy <laughs> looks like a good candidate for, you know, for Parkinson's. Right. right. So there's all sorts of very oh, nasty yeah. stuff. Oh, that yeah. can also totally. I mean, you yeah. could be, you could lie on your insurance policy and say you don't smoke, but you're actually caught smoking, you know, on camera, right? <laughs> Scary, no? Really, we'll all be behaving like, uh, like class captains <laughs> in the end. Even if, uh, yeah, maybe you don't even need a, a, a regime to do that. Maybe. Maybe a capitalist system is already enough to... Yeah, it's already happening. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So... Oh, well, well, that's great. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you left him with a more dystopian vision, I can imagine. Uh, well, yeah, I guess at, at some point we'll just simply have to rely on, on um, you know, the various authorities uh, you know, out mm. there to, to somehow act in our interest. And, yeah. It's a great note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All Good. right. Well, thank you very much for your time. I enjoyed it a lot. All right. Thank you very man. much, man. Good. Future Design Podcast. Future Design Podcast.